Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And in this episode, we are discussing A Dream So Dark by L.L. McKinney, the second book in the Nightmareverse series. And I didn't write a plot synopsis before recording, so fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> the novel picks up right after the battle that ended the first book. Alice is grounded um, and people are in trouble and lots of villains come out of the woodwork and Alice has to go into Wonderland, but she also accidentally goes to Japan and then there's large battles and that's what happens. <laughs> chaos ensues there's uh, chaos lots and lots of chaos <laughs> all right initial reactions i think as y'all know at this point i love ll mckinney um i follow her on twitter and i just love everything about her she's great um so you have to know that i love this book too i thought it was fast paced and super fun i loved getting some additional povs this time around so I stan, I guess. Like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. No choice but to stan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. It's a black feminist reimagining of Alice in Wonderland. So what's not to love? Um, yeah. Also, it's very gay. So I, yes. so I stan. Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. So we spend a lot of time in this book in wonderland and i thought it was really cool to see how mckinney reimagined some places and things that we've seen time and time again in movies and adaptations and things like that um she changed things up but kept wonderland just as fantastical as we would expect it to be so i really enjoyed like getting a wider view of um the world she created i agree with you and but i don't think that we saw as many of the like mm fantastical descriptions of wonderland as we had in the first book there wasn't quite as much of that but we did see it a little bit with what's alice's best friend's name courtney courtney yes thank you because it was courtney's first time in wonderland so that did make things a little bit more interesting right we got to see a character experiencing it for the first time and that was kind of fun yeah and we got to see like the different gates like um, in japan we got to see the eastern gate um whereas alan's at alice is at the western gate and we got to see um like a town which i didn't expect people to like live in wonderland and towns for some reason so like when um addison is getting helped by nat nat um the healer um and like her family so i thought that those kinds of things were things that i didn't expect to see in wonderland so i think we get like kind of a mixture of like the fantastical and the mundane yeah and we also saw the town where they were training the dragons yes and the one that got basically plundered by all of the creatures yeah yeah the the uh, now i can't slide 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 that's it slide (laughs) Well, they were like, because they weren't nightmares, they were like dogs or they were like nightmare dogs or something like that. Oh, no, they were. No, they were people turned into. It was like they're like zombies. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. So that is like that's what we learn happens to chess 
anyway. Yes. I'm putting it together. It's been a while since we read this book. Um, another thing I loved is that Alice goes to Japan. It's like an accidental cross hemispheric trip. Yeah, her mom is not happy. No. Oh, my God. And I also loved that the reimagining of the caterpillar, too. What was her name? Mm-hmm. Um, it was Haruka's like, like quote unquote handler, whose name now I cannot remember. But she was such a badass. I thought it was hilarious and really clever that McKinney depicted her as like constantly smoking and vaping. And I liked yeah, that, which was funny. I liked that small detail, like the vaping edition, because it made the world yeah. building feel super real. Because we're reading it, like obviously in the contempt, it's a contemporary urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. but it, it'll probably be like one of those things like we talked about with Cassandra Clare where she talks about like the phone book and then it becomes you know yeah. 20 years from now it's not a thing but yeah yeah because like I don't know vaping already seems to be getting less and less popular but I don't I don't know what the youths are doing these days so <laughs> who knows who knows um also Cho is my new favorite character the like dragon dog thing. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> who, fly, you would. who flies? I mean. Yeah, I did think like never ending story. And maybe like <laughs> McKinney mentioned that in like in the exposition, but like all I could think was like that flying dog thing from Never Ending Story. Oh my god, I didn't <laughs> even think of that until you just mentioned it. It was like all I could see was like <laughs> and I haven't watched that movie since I was like a child, but like when I saw that I was like, Oh, like from Never Ending Story. That's hilarious. I did not even put that together at all. Well, there you go. It's in your head now forever. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that puppet. Ugh. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. Alice can use the Vorpal Blade now and has revealed some powers we didn't know about before, like shooting light out of her hand that like hurts people. So I think we might find out in later, and and I think we might find out why in later books, but I think this may turn into more of a chosen one story um, as we move through the series. So I'm interested to see what happens with that. I hadn't thought about the chosen one angle But I think you might be right because now that I'm thinking about it, several characters over the course of both of the books that we've read mentioned that Alice is different slash special slash more powerful than they expected her to be. Um, Mm -hmm. So that could very well happen. And I think that because I'm on this Cho kick, I think they were kind of teasing when they were in the village meeting Cho that that there was like that one loner dragon who's someone died their ride or died or whatever ha 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 ride or die anyway (laughs) (laughs) um i had to put a pun in there just for you yeah thank you thank you you're welcome so maybe alice will end up like riding the dragon like bonding with that dragon or something like that and becoming super awesome well i have this feeling so we'll see where it goes and this is partly because I watch too much TV and read too many books that I, you know, you kind of start to be able to like predict these things. But anyways, I have a feeling you're, that Alice... You're a witch is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I can see the future. Um, I have a feeling that Alice might actually somehow be the Red Queen that has gone missing. And that was the writer for like that lone dragon thing that disappeared. And I think that's why she will connect with the dragon. Like, I think there's something going on there where Alice 
might be like some reincarnation of that queen that went missing. That's my prediction. Mm. I'm sold. So we'll see. I'm sold. <laughs> Should I just like email Elle McKinney right now and be like, hey, I figured it out I for figured you. It out. Like, yeah, she, write it this way. She would totally appreciate that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think so. She would <laughs> light you up on Twitter. She's the best on Twitter. Probably. <laughs> yeah, this would be like a DM because I don't want it to be like out there in, in the in the people's sphere. No. <laughs> I think like muchness we could put this in this like wands out section don't you think mm-hmm. yeah because it's the key to alice's powers and it's i loved the quote um during alice's dark night of the snow dark night of the soul about how muchness is the way you imagine yourself at your most powerful mm-hmm. and i just was curious what you would look like at your most powerful how do you imagine oh. yourself as at your most powerful um I would probably look mostly the same because I don't really like the idea of changing how I look that much. <laughs> um, but probably mostly in like all decked out in my emo gear, like, you know, Doc Martin, yes. all black, that sort of thing. Like I'm about to walk into the matrix or something. <laughs> Hell yes. Oh my gosh. Totally. <laughs> what about you? Um, well, stretchy pants, obviously, <laughs> but also probably darker colors maybe a graphic tee love a graphic tee really darker colors yeah because my hair is already bright enough you know okay I see, I see. it's already yeah. like a statement probably some yeah. red lipstick love mm-hmm. me some lipstick and then also doc martens because i just got some because i copied you because i think you're yeah, so cool yeah. and they're so comfortable and i love them and they make me feel like i'm ready to go kick patriarchy's ass every time i leave my house yeah they're the best would recommend 10 out of 10 would recommend <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought those scenes were interesting though um I like that Alice didn't like look completely different. Like Alice knew that was her. Right. It was just like Alice kind of dressed like kind of like um she talked about like going to conventions with her dads and stuff. So like more similar to that. I think it's yeah, that's really cool. I hadn't put that together. That it's basically like Alice cosplaying is yeah. Alice's most powerful version of herself. And I think that's a huge reclamation and makes me think of one of the first books we read for the podcast Ship It. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Where it's re- Love that where it's like reclaiming POC visibility and space within these like nerd fandoms. Yeah, it could be a hard place for us. Wands <laughs> away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment. Get me Kylo Ren. I just thought of this this morning, but I think that we get a Kylo-esque character with a redemption arc in the form of Humphrey, a.k.a. the second Black Knight. Yes. Wait, have you seen Rise of the Skywalker yet? Yeah. Okay. Okay, spoiler alert for Rise of the Skywalker. Let's just put that out there just in case. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm... Okay, so, like, I feel like maybe in future books we'll get, like, a more Kylo Ren-esque redemption arc with Humphrey because I'm going to assume he's, like, going to come in and, like, save the day but, like, die doing it or something. Oh, yeah, probably. Because they wouldn't kill off Hatta. I hope not, but we'll see. Yeah. I guess maybe. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised pretty much if anyone died like I was surprised Chess didn't actually die yeah I, that mm, yeah 
because he, he was just like oh i have amnesia she was making me do it the whole time which like yeah. i get she act like the bloody lady is that what we're calling her yeah i think that's what alice called her oh like yeah i mean she was in control of him mm-hmm. and so i guess that does give us a picture of villainy as like you can like as you're you're a tool for someone who's a mastermind behind you right and that's what like, we're um, that's what we're seeing pretty much all the i mean f- for all of the villains in this story yeah like palpatine <laughs> uh can i just say it was bullshit that they made ray a palpatine thank you yeah that is my take i don't really know i wish they didn't but it's like whatever i don't i'm not like the biggest star wars fan i'm mostly just a kylo ren fan <laughs> <laughs> same yeah yeah um, our other villain, as we've kind of touched on, is the Bloody Lady. So she has, like, taken over the mind of Humphrey. And Humphrey's, like, starting to break free of that. He's the imposter Black Knight. Also, like, former love interest of of Addison's, which is kind of interesting. Um, and she's taken over control of chess. And she's doing this stuff with the nightmares or with this thing called Slive and, like, taking over people and basically making them enter her controllable zombies which was a pretty cool power i guess i mean maybe don't use it for such bad things but (laughs) she is the villain i also thought it was interesting or curious you could say curiouser (laughs) and curiouser Uh that uh um we see the bloody lady almost using too much power right because she has Mm -hmm. the heart and then when she gets the eye it like seems to be too much power for her to wield and so it like depletes her essence or something do you remember that yes and i think it's how we kind of find out through addison that she's not the actual red queen but i mean i guess kind of like humphrey she's like an imposter so i don't really know who she is because it seems like only like the royals can control like the eye and the heart and i don't know if there are other like magical instruments throughout the world we haven't encountered yet but she's not one of those so she is obviously very powerful to be able to do that and that's part of why i think alice might be the red queen because she was able to use the heart i think or the eye at that end battle scene with the bloody lady Mm, good point Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Let's start with race. You can't really talk about this book without talking about race, I don't think. Um, and there was a lot set up in the first book in, in such a way that because they're in Wonderland this time around, I think race maybe plays a less big role in this story um, because we're not seeing um, Alice walking through like a very white world um, because she lives in Atlanta. Um, But I love that when Alice is a narrator, we have the use of AAVE in the narration. Um, I really just, will you say what that stands for? Oh yeah. Anyone doesn't know. AAVE is African American vernacular English. Um, Even though I personally don't use the term African American, I prefer black, but it's, it's whatever. Um, but I really appreciated this. And I think this is one of those things that really speaks to um, having someone from that background writing the story. Because this would come off as weird, I think, if a non-black person was writing this story. 
Um, and I really appreciated it because I don't think we get a lot of stories written from the perspective of young black people where they also include AAVE and don't make it like a big deal. So I really appreciated that. It's just normalizing this other way of talking, Mm -hmm. which I, if a white author or a non-black author were to do that, would be totally inappropriate and appropriative, I think. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like it would come off as, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that that would land very well. No. I totally agree with your point that this is one of those aspects that, like, this is why representation in publishing is so important right. is so that we can have voices like this and stories told from um, voices like this that have always existed, but just haven't had access to the pub platform that is YA publishing. Yeah. Agreed. Um, we also have Naet speaking Hosa and Haruka speaking Japanese. Um, and I thought it was interesting because McKinney didn't translate for us what they were saying and she didn't write it in the story. Um, but I thought it was interesting to see like these different communities and like how, um, when, um, Alice is in Japan with Haruka, like they're taking their shoes off when they go into the houses. And so we're seeing like how different cultures function. Um, and when she's with Naet, it seems like very matriarchal. Um, and Naya is a healer. So I just thought those things were like really cool. Um, I really like the way like that we got to see how different cultures, even though they're in Wonderland for part of it with Naet and Haruka, like we get to see how these different cultures kind of function. Totally. 100%. I guess there's not too, too much to discuss class wise, probably because we spend so much time in Wonderland and, there do seem to be class divides in Wonderland with the royalty and pretty much everyone else. Right. But um, I don't know. They don't seem to be affecting the narration too, too much at this point. Right. I guess, I mean, we see how much power the royalty have and that they were able to banish and curse Addison out of Wonderland. But Mm -hmm. other than that, like we don't really see like, the non-royals interacting with the royals in such a way to show like a, a really descriptive class distinction between the two. Yeah. And that's something I'm, it makes me curious. Maybe the, the lack of information itself is also worth talking about, right? Is like, we don't have any information about how the royals came to be royal, like mm-hmm. the origin story, or it doesn't really, like you were saying, we don't really see any interaction between the, between like, I don't know, the people in these communities that we um, encounter throughout the book and the royals, like there doesn't seem to be particular love or hate for them, which is kind of refreshing, right? Yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah, they're there, but we don't really we carry on with our lives and they do whatever. Yeah, I guess we see a little bit when um, I think Duchess and Addison are in the different towns. We see Mm -hmm. how the people have like this reverence for them because they were I think the Duchess was the white knight and Addison, the black knight. So people know who they are. They are like pseudo famous. Um, But they but they seem to care more about the fighters than they do about the royals they're protecting. Yeah, exactly. Which is cool. It shows like the values of the this fictional culture. Yeah, for sure. Um, another class uh, point is Alice and Courtney. Yeah, which we saw more of that divide between them and how it came like that was one of the things that um, caused conflict between these two besties was class status mm-hmm. um, and like Courtney's priorities. Who was just she's so privileged and wasn't like understanding why Alice couldn't come to her birthday party. Yeah. 
but that's book one in book two i do think we see some character development for court from courtney Mm -hmm. where she's like less of a useless rich girl and more of she's willing to stab someone with the heel of her louboutin i mean that's like (laughs) sacrifice okay is it i have no idea i don't even know how much a pair of louboutins costs because like like five hundred dollars Okay, that is not as bad as I thought, but I'm also like, I wouldn't buy them because I am not spending that much money on shoes for my feet to hurt. <laughs> like, no thank you. <laughs> but good for her. You can buy a pair of Christian Louboutin heels for, oh, no, the lowest one I'm seeing is $650. Okay, well, I'm not spending money on that. That just seems... That's like hell no. I mean, to each their own, obviously, but I'm not like not enough into shoes for that. I wear like two pairs of shoes. So <laughs> yeah, not happening. Yeah, but good on Courtney. Like she's she's she wants to be more helpful, I think, in this novel than we saw in A Blade So Black. I think at one point Addison is trying to get her to go back home or at least go back to like go to Japan. Um with like Haruka's handler and she is like committed to staying to help even if that mm-hmm. helping means like helping um Nyat's grand son gra- gather herbs and healing things so that you know she can be helpful when they get back from their battle yeah you saying that that that's a really good point that it like upsets the power mm-hmm. dynamic when Courtney who has a bunch of power and cultural capital and money in the real world or in on earth whatever um then comes to Wonderland and finds that all of her status and things that had made her very like had capacitated her very much and mm-hmm. like let her move through the world with a certain degree of power don't that doesn't work for her in yeah. Wonderland so like other kinds of abilities are um, like more valued yeah and I think it's she navigates that really well like from going from someone with a, a ton of privilege to going to Wonderland and she doesn't not have privilege that we know of like there's I'm not sure but she doesn't have money like none of that stuff matters there Um, I'm guessing because they don't use like the money from this realm and I feel like she navigates that pretty well. So I think we have seen her like kind of grow and change as the book has gone, like as the books have gone on. Agreed. All right, let's talk about gender. We get really strong females throughout this story. And I particularly like the generational view we get with Alice, her mom and Nana Kay. So like kind of like the maid mother and crone. Um, And L.L. McKinney said on Twitter that her favorite character to write was actually Nana Kay, which I thought was, like, really cute. I loved Nana Kay. I thought, oh, my gosh. She was, I I was really glad that we got to see more of her in this novel. Me too. Um, We also have Duchess, Nat, and Haruka, as well as Haruka's handler, whose name I cannot remember now. Um, But I think we also have, like, Xylon and... um, whatever the princess's Mm -hmm. name is. So we have a lot of very strong female characters throughout this story, which I think is great. Um, I don't really expect anything less, but it is kind of changing up the narrative because um, of the like warriors we see fighting for like at the gates, like half of them are women um, as opposed to like, I forget like what Tweedledee and Tweedledum's names are. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the two twins, the like Russian twins, and then we have Alice and Haruka. So it's kind of cool to see that like half of the people protecting the gates are women. 
Absolutely. So much more gender equity, it seems like, in these, um, uh, both in Wonderland and in the Atlanta that it's showing. Yeah. Because the the main characters that we encounter in Atlanta are Alice's mom and Nana Kay. Mm-hmm. And then also the poet, what's her name? Maddie? Yeah, Maddie. Yeah. Um, but then in Wonderland, we pretty much only have women in power. Mm-hmm. Except for like a few dudes here and there. Yeah, but I think even like the royals are all queens. Mm-hmm. Which is like, we're not about royalty, but. I mean, I like them a little bit. Like, I love following the stories <laughs> about like the UK royalty. Like, I'm all <laughs> I'm all caught up on like this Harry Meghan situation. <laughs> You're going to have to catch me up because I am not caught up. Well, I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's um, talk about ability. So I have a question. Al- Addison at this point is still supposedly, quote, going mad, right? Like he still has this, that black black spot disease thing that's like supposedly taking him, like spiraling down into his, I don't know, body mind somehow to turn him mad. Is that happening still? I think so because he, he does mention a few times about like drinking like alcohol to help with the madness that is going on. But I'm not really, I don't remember if that is from the curse that the Black Knight gave Alice to give to Addison or if that is something from before that. So I don't really remember. He has a lot of stuff going on because he also has that um, banishment going on. And that seems to be like that's like slowly killing him while he's in Wonderland. Yeah, he has this like different layers of injury and and, and lack of capacity and all these things because he does get like his ass kicked yes several times throughout the novel and needs to be rescued yeah rescued by a lot of people (laughs) he takes it well though so good yeah he does and i think what we also it's curious to note that we see that trauma affects ability in the novel right so or rather not facing trauma i guess Mm mm-hmm and the fears resulting from them is what specifically what traps Alice in her dark night of the soul scene. Mm-hmm. And then Alice, like her big breakthrough is that she learns that she can be afraid and fight anyway. Right. And so let me just say that that whole scene equates to years of therapy. <laughs> years. Yeah. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about sexuality, asexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. We have the availability of so many ships after this book, so I'm just going to list some of them. Alice and and Addison, which is like my ship. I ship them. Why do you ship them? Oh, I just really like Addison. He's like peak my type so oh my god totally (laughs) that's why and obviously I'm I put myself in the place of Alice like a super strong black woman yeah like yes please (laughs) yes you are um we have Addison and Humphrey who I think that like Addison says that he loves Humphrey and I wasn't sure 100% like if this was like in a romantic way or not but I think it was 
Um, yes, that I, was my understanding too. Mine too, but I can also see how that could be like walked back a little bit in a future book. And I don't think like intentionally walked back because um, I know Ella McKinney is like super on board for like LGBTQ plus representation, but I feel like we might see some different dynamics change with their relationship. Humphrey and Alice, maybe the Dark Knight seems to have like this weird connection with Alice, like where he like kind of maybe is in love with her, but I like, I'm not really sure. Ooh, we could have a frenemies to lovers or enemies to lovers situation. Exactly. <laughs> um, Alice and Haruka, like so cute. Like I really like them, even though I'm like on the Addison and Alice ship. But like, I love how like nervous Alice gets. And it's just like, <laughs> I feel so, so bad. Cute. <laughs> um, and then we obviously also have Alice and Chess. Um, there was like a kiss that happened, but like, chess wasn't really himself i don't think chess was it was like zombie chess yeah but he also like seemed to come out of his zombiness for a little bit so i don't really know and that also raises some questions about consent so like oh wow yeah that does it's kind of a mess but everyone has lots of options and it's super cute and i just don't know who's gonna end up with who <laughs> i i just love how these options like there's as many non-hetero options as hetero options which i really appreciate and we're all about the representation here on this podcast Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and another point on the proliferation of ships i the fact that we see alice having simultaneous feelings for addison and haruka really strikes me as quite radical Mm -hmm. and new i don't know what you think but um, at least in my experience, I don't think I've read a, ever read a novel, let alone a YA novel that normalizes bisexuality, pansexuality, non-heterosexuality, whatever Alice identifies as in this way, because it's also, it's also like playing with non-monogamy a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. or like normalizing the fact that you can have feelings for more than one person at the same time. And it's not like a thing that needs to, like, we don't need to rush to resolve, um, so in that way, I think it's really cool how L.L. McKinney in writing all these different characters and these possible ships is resisting that love triangle motif where you try to like rush right. to get two people together, mm-hmm. um, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I think it's great, um, especially because I think I think you're correct in YA books. We normally we I feel like we kind of have a love triangle kind of wrapped up within one book, um, like thinking kind of like. Rhysand and Tamlin or um, like Jace and Simon. Um, There's lots of options, but either way, I think in real life, it's not that unusual for someone, especially at this age to have feelings for two people at the same time and kind of be like vacillating back and forth between the two. And like that doesn't get solved super easily. And maybe not, maybe not just at that age. Obviously I haven't dated since I was like, that age so I don't know like (laughs) what the olds are thinking now like what people my age are going through I have no idea as far as dating but um yeah I think it's good and like Alice is allowed to have feelings for more than one person like she's 16 it doesn't need to be figured out right now so like date a bunch of people have feelings for all of them like who cares like I mean not that you can't do that as an older person but it's just like it doesn't need to be figured out right away (laughs) yeah And I appreciate how, like, within the exposition and the narration itself, Alice, like, in her own head wasn't making it a thing. Right. You know, it was just observing, but non-judgmentally, like, all of her different feelings and how she's reacting with Haruka versus how she's reacting with Addison. Yeah. um, 
yeah, I just thought she's like paying attention to herself and her feelings in a way that is like a really great role model. Like it's a positive way of modeling that sort of um, self-awareness for readers. Yeah. It's so healthy. Like just, yes. Think about how you're feeling. Like you can just sit in those feelings and that's also fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they can be contradictory and you can have more than one at the same time. And yeah. Yeah. I wanted, also wanted to talk about um, like friendship, I guess. Mm -hmm. We see um, Courtney and Alice kind of, um, repairing I guess their relationship that was pretty on the rocks in the first book Mm -hmm. so I appreciated that like Courtney was more humble and let Alice take the lead so again we have this like power shift where Alice in the back in Atlanta is used to deferring to Courtney but then we see Courtney like accepting with humility I guess the fact that Alice is way more badass than her (laughs) yeah like a lot like by far I appreciated that yeah, that was really good. Um, it wasn't like a scarcity. There was no scarcity mindset where Courtney was feeling threatened by how powerful Alice is or how smart she is or how much she like knows how to rule Wonderland, mm-hmm. right? It was just accepting that your friend's a badass and that you're going to be along for the ride on this one and you're not the main character and that's cool. Yeah, agreed. Um, sexy times. We don't really get any sexy times in this book, but I don't think there would have been time for it. And I think... If that had happened in this story, I would have been like, who has time for, like, at, um, like, in the Grishaverse, like, there's, like, they're whatever, they're, like, freaking out about everything that's going on, and um, Alina and Mal are like, let's have sex. I'm like, y'all don't have time for that. So I appreciated that we didn't, like, add that in for no reason, because there's a lot of <laughs> shit going on. There's no time. Y- y'all... We, I mean, we get a kiss between Chess and Alice, and that's kind of it. And, like, butterfly feelings. There was, like, pining yeah. with Haruka, <laughs> which I loved. It reminded me of, like, that sort of awkwardness. It reminded me, I just started watching the second season of Sex Education. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of giving me Otis vibes, right? Oh, like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So many feelings. They're overwhelming puberty. Yeah. Wow. But especially hard for Otis because he is so awkward, which He's is so fine. awkward. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. I've already finished Sex Education season two. So, like, y'all, it was great. I think, actually, I think I did, like, a, th- a thread of all the stuff I watched over the winter break. So that was one of them. Nice. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. You mentioned this in the initial reactions, I think, but I thought the pacing of the novel was really balanced and well done. So there was, you know, it was moved pretty seamlessly through these different travel narratives and you didn't mention that you were bored. So that's like a huge win. And there was also lots of action fight scenes, character development, different twists and also world building. I thought that was um, commendable. Yeah. I think that Ella McKinney did a really good job here because uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I do normally get very bored with the travel stories. Um, But while they were traveling, we were learning more about the world or something was going on. And so I, I think that really moves the plot along in a way that isn't just like, let's watch these people walk across this new world that we've never seen before. So I really appreciated that. And I was like, there were a couple of points in the book where they referenced back to something that happened in the last book, but at the same, like 
they're referencing back to it and explaining what happened without it being like over explanatory, which I really appreciate it because like we read a blade so black kind of a long time ago and I quickly yeah. forget in between all the other books that I've read what happened. So I really appreciated that. Yeah. There was enough like signposting, mm-hmm. I guess for readers. Yeah. That was very helpful. Mm-hmm. I also think that the dialogue is just killer in general. It's super witty and McKinney brings out the individual voices of each character. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like, it's funny. The jokes are funny. I'm just thinking about the one from, I think it was the first book, about how white people don't use spices. And, like, it's yeah. so true we don't. Yeah, just pumpkin spice, salt, and pepper. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and sugar. Yeah, y'all are embarrassing. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. No, I think it was really good. And, yeah, I think you're right. Each um, character has their own voice. And they seem like real people. Like sometimes I feel like when you're reading a dialogue or reading dialogue in a book, it just seems so like contrived. But I think this really feels like very natural, which I'm, I assume is like very difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. Do you remember if we got other POVs in the previous novel? No. I think it was just Alice. Okay. I thought it was interesting to see, like, I really enjoyed having the other POVs in this one, um, especially because all of our characters are doing different things in different places. So it was interesting to see how the madness and the curse were working in Adda and, or in Hatta, sorry, and see at um, Humphrey, AKA the imposter black knight come to the realization that something was happening in his memories. And then obviously we're with Alice and seeing how, um, she's like making her way through wonderland and coming into like these possibly new powers. Um, I, I thought that the addition of um, more POVs was really good and like really well used in this book. Absolutely. I thought that it was very, like a very smart tactic as far as how do we expand the world building without feeling like you're pausing the narration or whatever or how do you give more backstory without feeling like oh we're just like taking a vacation from the plot of the narrative but incorporating those different POVs lets that happen um I thought that was a super effective tactic yeah and it's also fun to mix it up a little bit we learn about other characters yeah I appreciated that and we got some flashbacks, which I appreciated when we were with either Humphrey or Addison. I don't remember which one um, because their stories are like so intertwined. I thought that was a really good use of the flashbacks that we might not have been able to see otherwise if we were with Allison the, or Alice the whole time. Agree. Um, we also have Alice tell her mom everything. Uh, Shocker. I know. I feel like this rarely happens in fantasy books. The teens are always hiding things from their parents and getting tr- in trouble because of it, which we see happening with Alice in the first book. So I really appreciated a departure from this narrative. And Alice's mom handled it like a champ. Like, I just like really appreciated the way they set up this story and made like a parent who wasn't like villainized for being like for just being a parent, you know? Um, yeah. For being like worried that their kids yeah. in Japan. Yeah. In Japan <laughs> with no passport, no money, no way to get home. Like, <laughs> and she's worried about her daughter, like being this, like, you know, pseudo Buffy, the vampire slayer character, because like her daughter <laughs> could die. And that is a, a reasonable reaction. Yes. I love how they, I totally agree with you. I really like how the um, L.L. McKinney granted Allison's mom or Alice's mom, Allison, I guess that is her name. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, Like 
access to a full humanity Mm -hmm. we could say like she we got to see her struggle with the fact that she's not being able to protect her kid Mm -hmm. and that's really scary yeah and it's a parent and something i assume that like a lot of parents go through even if their kid's not like a super badass superhero because like eventually you have to let your kids go and if you don't they'll probably resent you forever so like there's that but um yeah like it's hard like you can't be with them all the time and so i can see where her mom would have these concerns but like also have the wherewithal and the like mental health to like be able to let go well and to be able to like check herself and be like yeah i can't fight the way my daughter can Mm -hmm. so i'm going to like give up some of my power for lack of a better like term yeah right and again like how courtney accepted this shifted power dynamic i thought we I really appreciated how the novel like wasn't lazy and mm-hmm. it wasn't just like, yeah, Alice is, keeps lying to her mom the whole time. Cause we know that's not going to work. It no. hasn't been working for pretty much the entire series. Yeah. Her mom is way too smart for that. Yeah. It's like, it just goes to show, I, I think the difference in care, like all these white parents who are like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's so true. They're like, you're grounded, but like you can still have your phone. So you're going to sneak out and like, what yeah yeah it is very different (laughs) yeah so culture like we see the difference culturally right for sure um and i also think that the the fact that i totally agree with you that we don't see this happen very often Mm -hmm. and i think that kind of goes to show that there is this assumption in ya that like the older generation isn't going to be able to like hang yeah or understand what's going on they're just gonna keep thinking that they have the monopoly on deciding how the world gets to go right. or deciding how we get to fight these fights that are coming up. And I appreciated that there was like cross-generational yeah. understanding and like conflict resolution. Yeah. So like tr- find yourself some trusty adults, you know, <laughs> that's what you need. And if your parents yeah. are white, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have another theory about Mana Kay. Okay. So like this necklace seems like they're teasing that it's more that it's more than just a necklace, don't right. you think? Yeah, I think and so. I, like, is it some sort of Wonderland artifact? Is Nana Kay like was she a badass fighter? I don't know. Yeah, that'll be interesting actually. Because doesn't Nana Kay have Alzheimer's? Yeah, she has like some sort of dementia, right? Cognitive decline. Yeah. So. It will be interesting because we also see like Humphrey who has lost memories. So yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Curiouser and curiouser. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm interested to see where that goes because they did make a big deal of her giving it to Alice. And then it gets brought back up again at the very end of the novel where Courtney like notices the necklace. So yeah, we'll see. I feel like those sorts of things, those sorts of details rarely are like, have no reason behind them well it's like Chekhov's gun like you can't mention it and then not use it like that would be weird um, yeah that actually, point. actually happened and that actually happened in like a portion of his dark materials that I was watching where they like made a point of showing that the character had a gun and then they never used it and I'm like what the fuck like why did you even show like make a big deal of showing it they're just fucking with you <laughs> yeah they are but it also like it's very annoying I'm like this is not this is not how you tell a story. <laughs> right. And there is like this consideration where if you're going to draw your readers or your listeners or your viewers attention to something, 
and like it's for it's on purpose yes and if it's not on purpose then you didn't need to do it (laughs) yeah yeah so i think you're right something's gonna come of this necklace i just don't know what we'll see to be determined tbd recommend if you like I think fast-paced adventure stories with a bit of violence. I know this story has been um, talked, like, I think one of, like, the blurbs is something about, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Alice in Wonderland. And I think that's a pretty good um, comparison. I don't know how many YA readers are watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, I think it's on Netflix, but, like, I don't know, like what the modern day equivalent is to Buffy the Vampire Slayer for. for Yeah, that's a good question because it is like a a comparison that only holds water. Like I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, even though I'm more of the age of people who would have. Well, even then, I think you're a little young. Like I was in middle school, elementary school when it was still on. Like I remember watching it and like you're younger than me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so I just think people who are teenagers, I don't know if this is something they watch. Um, what would yeah what would be the equivalent I guess like Sabrina maybe yeah maybe Sabrina although Sabrina is like way too white feministy to like Ugh, walk yeah. in L.O. McKinney's world <laughs> yeah I mean so is Buffy the Vampire Slayer let's be real yeah although from pretty, what I hear pretty diverse uh I don't know I don't know it's been a while since I watched it there's a bunch of podcasts like Buffy rewatch podcasts yeah so go okay. check those out if you're a if you're a Buffy fan yeah um I don't know what the modern equivalent would be maybe even Underworld seems a little old now because mm-hmm. I'm like maybe Underworld meets um, I mean like that's my shit but yeah, yeah mine too old. but I think like the first one came out when I was like in maybe middle school so that was a long time ago <laughs> folks yeah <laughs> well maybe I'll maybe I'll do an Underworld uh marathon one of these weekends yeah that's a good choice (laughs) yeah i can't think of an equivalent it's kind of like um a throne of glass meets alice in wonderland i'd say because she's like a super badass kind of assassin fighter type yeah 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 and that's a good point and we'll have a tv show for that i think or movie don't remember throne of glass yeah really wow pretty sure i'll look it up and put it in the show notes <laughs> i know thanks we're, yeah Jessie. i know we're getting um a court of thorns and roses i just don't know when Ugh, we're gonna have to wait forever probably it's fine if if i have to wait and it's good i don't care i'll wait forever good point before we end it's time for real talk did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you integrate something that you hadn't before? I'm going to go, I'm going to start because it has to do, my point has to do with the narrative itself. And then your point, Jesse, is like a little bit more meta. Okay. So um, I think had a, one thing I was thinking about uh, listening to the book because I listened to the audiobook, um, is that Hada provides us this vehicle for like a narrative vehicle for discussing justice and punishment and then also like abolition right so we see Hada as this like he's got a redemption arc and so he's essentially trying to carry out some sort of type of transformative justice right he's like accountable for what he did and um I don't know tries to repair that in some way and so the accountability came from his original punishment was exile Mm -hmm. um which is by spell yeah 
just interesting, right? Because he's not, he's both like in, he's in a physical prison like type situation by not being able to come back to his home. Yeah. So exile as like a type of um, imprisonment or incarceration. And then um, I don't know. I just, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that or. I mean, when I was like a resident advisor, we, we talked a lot about like restorative justice as opposed to like punitive justice. And I think this right. kind of goes along like with how do you make amends for the, things that you've done that have hurt people in such a way that like everyone can move on and not just like half of the people can move on. And I think um, Addison is like a good um, like metaphor for that kind of, in that like, I'm not sure that there was a, a way for him to um, make up for what he did before. Right. I don't know. It's kind of hard because I feel like in the end, he kind of not in the end of this novel, but in the end of the war that we saw throughout this novel, he, he did come around and try and help the, like the correct side. So I feel like to me, that seems like it's enough, but it's kind of hard because he was like a traitor. I don't know. But I also think, I, I think that what the novel does really well is it shows the Haruka's handler. <laughs> I don't remember her name. I'm sorry. Yeah, me either. But like, I do, I do like that the novel showed and explained like why she's really pissed at him mm-hmm. or is like only like on okay terms with him rather right. than like best friends like they used to be. Mm-hmm. Like those sorts of repair takes time. Yeah. And that's um, something I, I think that the book is, is dealing with. Yeah. And I think it also kind of shows that that kind of healing also kind of requires proximity because Addison and um haruka's um handler are like on literal opposite sides of the world and that makes it difficult for there to be any kind of redemption arc or healing between the two of them because there's like how would they do that you know yeah so yeah i think that's a good point what about you um for me this book brought to mind um you know YA is not the most diverse place as we know, but I really appreciate Alice having a wonderful, strong black father figure. He didn't die as part of a gang or at the hands of police violence. He wasn't written as a criminal. He's just an ordinary black man being an amazing dad. And I wish we saw more of that in the black books we read. Um, I think we kind of get some of it in Children of Blood and Bone, but we, yeah, her dad is like less of a strong father figure as much as like just a you know, he's a good dad. Um, but there just seems to be something different with Alice's dad that I really appreciated. And it's um, a picture I don't think we get to see painted very often. So I was really happy to see that in this book. That's an excellent, excellent point. And it is not trying to, it's like not falling into certain stereotypes mm-hmm. and which like exists for like, I don't know. Ugh. Like just the visibility, I, I guess it's just not fair that specifically black men mm-hmm. like we don't have access to these narratives about black men we right. only have access to specific types of narratives right of black black men gangs yeah police violence etc um so i i think your point is super important absolutely yeah and i think one of the things is that you know especially in publishing there has been you know a lot of work being done to get more diverse stories out there and i think that's great but a lot of those stories end up being about the pain of marginalized people so it was it's good to not have that and you know at least one option where that's not what this is about like we're not it's not a 
a violent story, a police violence story, a slavery story. So yeah, I just really appreciate having a story where it's her dad did die and that was tragic, but it was nothing stereotypical. We have an action item. So if you haven't done the me and white supremacy workbook, Lila Saad's book is now out and available for you to purchase or get from your local library or borrow from a friend. I will, I will be reading it as soon as my copy comes into the library. And I would recommend this to anyone who wants to work on their internal, internal biases. We can all do better. Absolutely. And I, one more recommendation is this, um, a black woman named Lisa Renee Hall does this thing called expressive writing prompts. And if you subscribe to her Patreon, then it does, she does a similar thing. Like we unpack our implicit biases through like writing or journaling expressively. That's her specific tactic. And it has, I've done several of them and I think that they're really useful. So that's another good resource. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Fazil. Although we've been a little slow editing wise and some episodes may show up out of order, TBH. Uh, we're doing our best. <laughs> uh, yeah, part of that's my fault. I defend my dissertation in like two months and submit it in like one month. So we really appreciate your patience. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you magical folks. Let us know what you have... <laughs> Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading, and you can contact us via email at JKMagicPod at gmail.com. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice, and we'd really appreciate if you would rate and review the show and also spread the word to other magical people out there. If you're interested in supporting JK It's Magic, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can also support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for mini-sodes, bonus apps, swag, and much more. And once both of us are out of school for the semester, I think that we'll be doing more on the Patreon. So look out for that. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Payankasha, Weya. Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sac, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>